James in the New Testament. I invite your attention there. We're, we're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Um, <clears throat> we begin, uh, let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to be with us to bless our time together. <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah says, uh, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no light in them. And this is Isaiah 8.20. Actually, it sets forth the regulative principle of the Scripture. If it's not according to Scripture, it's not from God. It's something man devised, right? So it has to be from the Scripture. So let's pray the Lord would help us to follow that regulative principle that it be according to God's Word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you help us this morning as we look into your word, the little epistle of James and the practicality of it. We pray that we might have insight through your Holy Spirit, that he would illumine our hearts and minds. He would direct us, Lord, into things of Christ and that he would reveal uh, the intent and purpose of uh, James' words this morning. We pray also for all the other Sunday school teachers, ask you to bless them, bless their class. We pray that... uh, uh, you would bless the church around the world as it gathers today to study your word together, to worship you, and to lift up your your praise and glory. We ask you to bless uh, this Sunday school hour. And again, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that uh, these truths from James might be edifying to each of us and it might glorify you. We ask, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in James. <clears throat> Chapter 5. Let me just read the passage and then we'll look at it together. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold, your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You've lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. You've fatted your hearts in the day, as in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. <clears throat> The most famous gold strike in American history occurred in 1848. A man by the name of John Marshall found gold on, in Sutter's Mill in Northern California. <clears throat> this uh, gold find set off this greedy rush, <clears throat> frenzied pitch, if you will, attracted prospectors not only from all around the America, but all around the world. But this uh, gold strike... ruined uh, both Marshall and Sutter, uh, the man that owned the land where the gold was found. Sutter's land was overrun by gold seekers. All of his cattle were stolen. He was driven into bankruptcy. And then um, John Marshall died drunken and penniless. And that's just two of the lives that were destroyed because of this gold rush. Worldly wealth and a life of desiring and seeking after wealth 
will tend to destroy <clears throat> whoever gives himself to that. And this is part of our study today. He is in the little book of James, he's giving us some basic uh, marks or diagnostic, uh, like a doctor would check you out and find certain symptoms and he would diagnose your case as to whether you're healthy or sick. And uh, James is giving us these diagnostic marks to see if we actually have real faith, true faith. Uh, there's at least seven that I know, and probably a lot more than that. I just haven't really thought about it that much like I should. But uh, he begins by the first mark of person that has true faith is that uh, they have this basic uh, <clears throat> uh, acceptance, if you will, or an attitude of, of, of delight in and whatever happens to them, it's, it's God's goodwill for them. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Because your attitude toward what happens to you is an evidence whether you have faith or you don't have faith. You don't curse God. You, you just you recognize this is from the hand of God. And the second is the response to His Word. You're to be doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word. The person that has true faith. Um, the third one is class discrimination. You do not discriminate. Do not show partiality. When you do that, you're committing sin. He says this in chapter 2. <clears throat> Uh, production of good works, another obvious evidence of, of faith. Uh, uh, you show your, show your faith by your works, James says. <clears throat> and then we come to self-control, which is the fifth mark. And basically the most obvious evidence of self-control in a person's life is how they control what they say, their speech, their tongue. So he has a lot to say about uh, the, the disuse of tongue. And, uh, and then he goes on and talks about the self-control and it's influenced by the world. And that's the section we're in now. Uh, worldliness. Uh, it, it, the wisdom from below instead of wisdom from above. We're ordering our life by the way the world thinks. And that's pretty much the way the church is today. It's caught up in what the world thinks. We want to be just like the world. The world's got all the answers, so we look to the world to give us the answers, and, and we operate based on the world system, how the world operates. And he's telling us this is actually wrong. <clears throat> it produces, if you will, quarreling, uh, the use of the city where we slander one another. Uh, it produces uh, ordering our life, planning our life without God. We don't need God, and the world tells us you do this, this, and you'll be successful, so we'll follow the world. <clears throat> and then um, now we come today with another influence from the world is um, how we obtain and use wealth or money. There's nothing so self-revealing about a person is their attitude toward money or wealth. It says a lot about a person. You, you, you touch their pocketbook, you really got their attention at that point. So it's like, it's like in the political saying, you need to go for the money. You know, that's where, that's the issue right there. And it's always an issue with us. It's an obvious uh, evidence of what the controlling factors in our life really are. And while there's nothing wrong with um, correcting people, nothing wrong with planning your life, nothing wrong with earning a living, spending your money, the problem is we don't consider God's will in that. It's not under the will and direction of God. It's not under 
the Word of God. It's, it's uh, what the world says. So this is what he's uh, addressing this issue, this uh, problem of pursuing wealth with a faithless disregard for God or others. Uh, Christianity understands and is strongly opposed to all forms of social and economic injustice, especially in this present fallen world system dominated by Satan. You're going to see that everywhere. It's just it's a, it's a fact of life. It just happens. <clears throat> and while social justice, John MacArthur's been preaching on this not too long ago, really some good good messages on this. Social justice basically is not a part of the gospel. It's not a part of our salvation at all. Um, but it should be an expression of faith and evidence of sanctification. I mean, doing the right thing toward people, that doesn't get you saved. But it should say that you are saved when you, when you do that, when you act right toward others and treat them justly and honorably. So James is concerned here <clears throat> basically with our, our, our personal responsibility and behavior. Uh, those who claim to be Christian... Uh, and he's not really dealing with any kind of economic system of social justice at all. He's he's dealing with how how faith impacts your life, how it affects you, and how you deal with other people, how you deal with your money. Uh, in chapter five, he's going to I think uh, he's going to conclude this issue of uh, of uh, worldliness, the influence of the world upon us. Uh, the first six verses has to do with uh, foolishly living for wealth. And in the next section, verses 7 through 11, he's going to uh, discuss the, those who suffer from such behavior. So in this section today, verses 1 through 6 of, of James chapter 5, um, he basically is going to do three things. He's going to announce the condemnation of uh, those that treat others unjustly and hoarding their wealth, if you will. And then he's going to describe their primary sin, which is hoarding and then thirdly, he's going to make a charge against them. So basically, the, uh, the point in this section is that he that lays up treasure for himself is a fool and is not rich toward God. He that lays up treasure for himself is actually a fool and is not rich toward God. A whole lot of Scripture backs that up. You read the New Testament, you read the Gospels, Jesus is constantly hammering on this issue because of that's one of the effects of following after the world and the wisdom from below. Notice in verse 1, he announces uh, those who have acquired their wealth, uh, have misbegotten wealth and hoarded wealth are the issues here of someone who is, is in Christian circles. I'm not sure. I don't think they're Christians at all. And I think that's what he's basically saying here. That this isn't an evidence of true faith. And he, he announces his condemnation in verse 1. And those who address, he says, Come now, you rich. Uh, he repeats back in chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we go. He, he repeats this state. Only He's the only one in the New Testament that uses this. It's used a lot in the Old Testament. Come come now, let us make bricks and build us a, a tower reaching to come now, let's do this. And of course God's saying, come now, let's go down and see what they're doing. So this, it's an attention-arresting statement, if you will, very Hebraic. And uh, it's almost like a bailiff in a courtroom. Hear ye, hear ye, all rise. You know, we're about to pass sentence on somebody. So this is the ad. Come now, you rich. Pay attention here. And the rich are those that are materially wealthy 
And, and many times in the Scripture, the rich are equated with the unrighteous. Actually, and again, wealth is not the problem. Money is not a problem. Um, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, it's the love of money. That's the problem. It's when we love money. And that's the issue here. He's saying, you who love money, uh, listen up. We've got some things to say here. So the rich here, again, I don't think uh, he's, uh, he, he's addressing believers. I think these are non-Christians. But uh, it may, may indirectly apply to us. In other words, we don't want to do what they're doing. We don't want to be guilty of what they're doing. So we, we do need to know these things. So he's actually, the you here, uh, second person uh, indicates that the, the rich would be hearing these words. Um, and we're probably somehow superficially associated with the church. And that continues to happen. Um, he doesn't call them brothers in verses 1. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he, nor does he call them to repent, but he does accuse them of condemning and killing the righteous. And it seems likely he's uh, referring to wealthy Jewish uh, non-Christians. Maybe we would think of them as land barons, slum lords, sweatshop bosses, slave owners. Um, these are the people back in chapter 2, verse 3, it says... These are the people that the church is now making sure they get the best seats. Remember the two men that showed up? This is the guy that gets the best seat. And he's the guy that's in church. And, and then James, is he slaps them all around. So this is the same guy that drags you to court. This is the guy that... And you're treating him like he's some kind of a king here. So this is the person he's actually talking about here. Um, and the people he's addressing... Uh, the twelve tribes scattered abroad basically are those uh, believers, probably, who work for these people, these wealthy non-Christians, and they they derive their livelihood from them. And so he's addressing them. Come now, you rich, and he's his demand here is weep and howl. Uh, so what, he wants them to weep and to howl. Uh, weeping and howling, actually, they were shrieking, crying out, screaming actually applies to judgment and despair that awaits those that disregard God's revealed will. Um, and again, here it's related to the, super, uh, the stewardship of wealth and profits. Uh, earlier he says he wants us to weep with regard to our sins. There's a certain weeping. There's a, there's a sorrow that uh, not, doesn't lead to repentance, but there's a sorrow that does lead to repentance. But this is a, this is a weeping here that includes... Uh, crying out in in in, de- in in despair, if you will, uh, it's an intense expression of grief and despair. Verse uh, <clears throat> verse one here, but basically, uh, Luke six twenty four talks about woe to you that are rich, you've received your consolation. Woe to you that are full, you shall be hunger. Woe to you that laugh now, for you shall mourn. Um, and basically, I think uh, he he's he's. He's telling us that all of us need to be uh, responsible stewards for the blessings God provides for us. And nothing, nothing wrong with having, having material wealth. I, nothing wrong with the profit system, the capitalist system. Nothing wrong with that. It's the abuse of these things that's the issue. We should provide for our family. If any man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel. We do need to go out and work and provide food and clothing and shelter for our family. 
We do need to use the things that God blesses us with to advance the kingdom of God. We need to use our funds to win the lost, to support the ministry, to care for people in need. Uh, in this section, he, he sounded like an ancient prophet denouncing wickedness and uh, summonsing them to do what they, what they already know they should do, as if the, the God's judgment is hanging over them. Um, <clears throat> your silver and gold will not be able to deliver you in the day of God's wrath, Zephaniah 1.18. A lot of the Old Testament prophets deal with this. You know, wealthy people uh, abusing others and hoarding their wealth. And misgotten, misgotten and then hoarding wealth. And then he gives the reason here. We have the who, the rich, what's demanded, weep and howl, and then what, what's required here for your miseries. Why is he, why is he required for your miseries which are coming upon you. Um, if you understood uh, where all this is taking you, you would you would you would begin to scream and howl. Wait a minute, this is taking me down that road that uh, most people never get off of. Uh, it's kind of a uh, you would weep and wail. There's this preliminary, uh, and I, you know, what is he talking about for this particular reader? Here, is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? I don't think so. Um, even though that's going to happen. This is written around 40, 49 A.D. And then, of course, Jerusalem 70 A.D. Um, the primary reference here is the future day of judgment, the great white throne, I think. It's going to be an awful ordeal to the wicked for your miseries are coming upon you. And uh, certainly, the great white throne is, a, is an awful thing to experience by anyone um, but it's nothing to compare to the, the consequence of that is the, uh, eternal hell uh, the day of, day of wrath and back in uh, Luke 16 you have the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell and, and, oh wait a minute here uh, I think of a lot of people that commit suicide thinking they're going get, to get out of this pain and misery that they're in and actually they step over into some real pain and some real misery at that point that's when the stark reality of what the scripture teaches comes to bear upon them but this man he's living in, he's living the high life here and James is saying you rich you need to weep and howl because for the miseries that are coming upon you and then he describes the primary sin of this person these people in verses uh, 2 and 3, he says, uh, <clears throat> For your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten, and your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire, as in the last day that you have stored up. It is in the last day that you have stored up yourself treasures. There's a couple of things here. First of all, there's, there's actually a curse upon hoarding in this world. Um, your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and silver have rusted. Um, every divine blessing, every 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 good thing that God gave, good thing comes down from above, but it, it has with it an attached, it needs to be used correctly. I tend to every now and then wire something up. I put a motion detector on my porch light. It took me six times taking it up, putting it down, sitting it up. You know, I only had three wires, but of course, instead of a white and black wire, I got a blue wire and a purple wire. So 
okay. <laughs> and in, in the, the motion detector, it had an extra wire, a red wire. Oh, no, where does the red wire go? you got to do this right, you know. So you have to, even in electricity, you've got to handle It's a blessing, but you got to use it right, okay, or it can be a curse to you, all right? It's like fire. It, it's good in the stove. It's not good on the roof. And so here we have these blessings come down from God, but they have to be used. In, even manna in the Old Testament, you have to use it. It's a blessing coming down from heaven, but you can't, you can't store it. It's going to rot on you. You have to use it the way God intended for it to be used. So here he's describing their abundant possessions, and then he, he lists them in the common three forms of wealth in the ancient world would be crops, clothing, and coins, the three C's, three big C's. Uh, it doesn't say crops, but it says rotted here, and that usually uh, suggests some kind of a perishable foodstuffs, and I think that's probably true, uh, like meat and grain, you know, after four weeks we have to throw the turkey and dressing out, you know, well, we'd like to keep it, but, you know, we eventually have to jettison it and so this stuff just doesn't keep and if you hoard it if you tear down your barns and build bigger barns like in Luke 12 these things will rot and decay and become of no use to you or anybody else so your crops they've rotted your clothing your garments have become moth-eaten again in the ancient world uh, clothing was a form of wealth Uh, usually it was uh, I mean you only had you didn't need walk-in closets. <laughs> you had what you had on your back and maybe something else. But then if they're a festive thing, you had one really, oh, that's my, my Sunday suit. You know, I keep that in the back there. But the, these things, uh, a lot of times it'll be costly, ornate, embroidered, uh, decorated, passed on as heirlooms in the family. And of course, uh, uh, they can become moth-eaten. Genesis, uh, 45, you remember uh, Joseph uh, gives to his brethren all these blessings, but he gives them garments, uh, changes of raiment. And to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver, five changes of raiment, all right? Uh, and Joshua, Achan's sin was, he saw, first thing he saw was the goodly Babylonish garment. And then the, the gold, the wedge of gold and the silver. The garment was the first thing he saw. And so these were forms of wealth in the ancient world, if you will. And the very, very, very important. Even Paul says, I've coveted no man's silver, gold, or apparel. So it's one of those things that continued in the ancient world as a form of wealth. So James is saying here, so you've, you've just fed the moths. You have, there hasn't been any benefit to you. You've, just, you've fattened up the moths around your, your community with, with that. And then the coins here, the gold and silver... Uh, have rusted, he says. This is again a monetary system which was displacing uh, the barter system. You know, I'll give you two goats for one donkey or that kind of stuff instead of fifty dollars. You know, so when we use the monetary exchanging something of equal value, we we use coins. Um, <clears throat> Abraham had silver and gold. And he uses this thing, this uh, expression of rust, as a symbol of disintegration. Uh, usually because of disuse. Uh, precious metals, uh, gold, silver, usually don't rush. They do rust. They do tarnish. Uh, they corrode. And of course, in the ancient world, you didn't really have pure alloy. Uh, you, you did the best you could, you know, with that. But you still had a lot of st- junk mixed in with it. It wasn't 
like 99.99% pure gold. There's a lot of stuff mixed in with it, and that would cause it to to corrode, to rust, this kind of stuff. And uh, so basically, everything considered valuable, he's saying, in this world is in the process of decay. It perishes, if you will. And Jesus tells us, don't lay up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. So hoarding riches provides no spiritual benefit or hope for the present or the future. Um he is. Uh, uh, he grants us these blessings of possessions and wealth to benefit our life, but they do need to be properly used and not foolishly hoarded. This is one of the sins that's being pointed out here. So, the things that are hoarded, there's a curse upon them. When they're not used the way they should be used, then there's a there's a curse on that. There's also a curse on the person hoarding them. And their rust shall be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Uh, it says something about how closely a person and their property are linked together here. Both are ruined together, if you will. Think of the, the rich young ruler. Uh, Jesus says, uh, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He just can't let go. He, I can't enter that narrow gate and hold all this stuff too. I can't get through there, but I'm not about to let it go. So they perish with all their stuff. And this is, this is a, like the rich young ruler. He went away grieved, for he had much possessions. He went away. He didn't accept the Lord at that point at least, as far as we know. He says these things, the purpose of the rust and the, the, the rotting and these kind of things with regard to the, the stuff that he's hoarded up, is they are actually, that's a witness against us. The rust and the corrosion of foolishly hoarded possessions by the wealthy serve as a witness for the prosecution against them, verifying their guilt. So when they stand, how do you know they're guilty? Bring in the witnesses. <laughs> you got the rust and the, and the moth-eaten and the rotten, all that comes marching in. Here we are, and this guy's guilty of hoarding. It's pretty obvious and evident that he's doing that. So the corruption of possessions seems to be the first sign of God's displeasure against those that hoard their wealth and don't use it for His glory. Uh, there's an attached uh, curse, if you will, to the misuse. Like I said, electricity, you just don't put your finger on that wire. <laughs> you know, Maybe the other wire, but not that wire. It's just one of those kind of things. You don't hook the blue and the green wire up together. It doesn't work that well. Things go flashing everywhere. Um, so basically he's saying that the, in the day of drudge, judgment, <clears throat> there'll be a punishment. This witness, uh, he that sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap this corruption. So here, the corruption is all coming in and it's showing itself as witness against him. And it's stressing here on this uh, um, individual attention. It's against you. Um, God is focused on this particular person individually. Um, God saves people individually. He rewards people individually. He punishes people individually. Uh, the consequences of those who look to hoarding wealth as a source of permanent security will find out in the day of judgment that their treasure will be the measure of their torment. I didn't use that for God. And that, whatever they've hoarded up, the treasure will be the measure 
of their torment. It's like, here's another log to put on my fire. See how that works? I'm not using it for God, so guess what? It's going to be used against me. I'm using it against myself in this case. It's be like fire. It will be torturing while it devours uh, a greatly intensified process of of punishment and pain, if you will, eternally. So you have the the curses on the things hoarded. It's on him personally, and it's it also affects eternally this person's well-being. It's in the last day. <clears throat> Excuse me. That you've stored up your treasure um, seems to echo Matthew six twenty one, where your treasure is, there's your heart also. And this passage in Luke twelve, whew, this is a scary thing. It says um, in Luke twelve fifteen, and he said, "Then beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possession. The things you'd have are not your life." And yet you're living like they are my life. This is my life. And he said to them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. He began reasoning within himself, What shall I do? Shall I have have no place to store my crops? He said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns, build large ones, and I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for you for many years to come. Take your ease, drink, and be merry. And then God says in the next word, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own those things which you've prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then he goes on to talk about, your, your, don't be anxious for your life. You know, don't, don't be overwrought. I gotta, gotta make this, I gotta be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. This kind of, that's, that's foolishness. You need to trust the Lord. You need to find the will of God for your life, even with regard to your, your, your money, your wealth, whatever you have, if you will. So basically, those that are hoarding wealth are storing up wrath and misery from God. Uh, <clears throat> And of course, he, notice he says, it's in the last day that you've stored up your treasure. Scripture says that uh, we're already in the last day. Actually, for all mortal men, you only have today. This is your last day. You, you can't say, tomorrow I'll do that. You don't know you've got tomorrow. And that's like the fool. God said, you fool, you know, tonight your soul will be required of you. So today is all of our last days, but... And no one has promised a tomorrow, but Scripture says that we're already in the last days, and that's what he's repeating here. It is the last day. <clears throat> this is the, actually the, the last days. There's that inter-advent period immediately preceding the return of Christ. And the Scripture uses this phrase a lot. Now, we're in the last days. I mean, we're, we're right at the edge here, and the Lord could come at any time. There's nothing, nothing preventing that. Acts 2.17 shall come to pass in the last days pour out my spirit. So from Pentecost on, Second uh, Timothy 3, 1, know this also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Hebrews 1, 2, uh, he has in these last days spoken by his son. Second Peter 3, 3, knowing this, that first of all, this shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. First John 2, 18, little children, it is the last time. You've heard that Antichrist will come. Many Antichrists, we know this is the last time. Jude 1, 18, apostles, Told you that you were mock, they would be mockers in the last days who would walk after their ungodly lust. So the scripture everywhere con- conveys this uh, 
attitude of expectation and imminency. We're in the last days. Uh, we were looking for uh, <clears throat> uh, Appalachian. Uh, what is it? The the gap in in Tennessee. What is it? Cumberland Gap. And I stopped this forest ranger. This is. Can you tell us how we get to the Cumberland Gap? And he said, you're in it, boy. <laughs> you're in it, boy. And all my kids had a great laugh. They still go over this you're in it, boy thing for me. But uh, we're in it. We're in the last days. We're in it, boy, already. We're here. Uh, and, and we should have this, uh, this expectation of, uh, and there should be a, a sense of imminency with regarding to the coming of the Lord. And he'll deal with more of this in the next section, verses 7 through 9. Uh, but certainly the wealthy are not motivated by a sense of accountability to God. But the, they're just, they don't care whether the Lord's, who, who, what Lord are you talking about? Like Pharaoh, I don't know who your God is. I don't have anything to do with him. I'm here making money here. You just get out of my way. So basically then he, he, he moves on to the specific charges having dealt with their, their sin, the curse upon them, the curse upon them, their wealth, the, uh, the personally and eternally. And then he, 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 he lays out the specific charges of the, the wealthy person that's hoarding and has misbegotten wealth, if you will. So basically, uh, verses 4 through 6, he says um, <clears throat> in, in verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the lords of Sabaoth. Um, <clears throat> certainly, we're not to owe anything, anything to anybody. We're affection, respect, gratitude, service. And in this case, you're certainly not to owe them any kind of a monetary thing that they've earned, if you will. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so we come now to the scary part, is that when that happens, it's, it says that the cry of the defrauded reaches the ear of God. Wait a minute. What? You haven't done that. I'm real sensitive about this. I, I don't know what this is. Somehow or another, somewhere in my past, this was been ground into my psyche about this particular issue. Um, this, God's concern about our behavior and dealing with people that have served us and we owe them and uh, he will see to it that this this will be taken care of. I'll talk about this one. I've been reading David Barron's book on uh, Zechariah, and he, uh, <clears throat> he he talked about this little word visit in Zechariah 10.3, where the Lord visits his people, visits uh, Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> basically, uh, he discusses Hebrew. Uh, David Barron's a, a Russian Jew, wrote back in 1918, I mean, he reads Hebrew like I read English, much better than I read English, by the way. But anyway, he's telling this little word, visit. This little word here is found in Zechariah 10.3. The visit is the word pequod. And it means divine visitation. <clears throat> you may recall the little book, Moby Dick. Some of you probably read that or you've seen the movie. Uh, it's a... It's a novel by Herman Melville. It's an epic tale of the voyage of the whaling ship by the name of Pequot. And it's Captain Ahab's relentless pursuit against uh, this great white whale. It's full of symbols, uh, typology, analogies. 
basically, this is just my view. You probably have a different view of the symbolism. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he loves this this book. He's always referring to Moby Dick. You, you read some of his stuff, he'll he'll tell you this, and he's got some great insights into the book itself. Basically, my view is that we are the captain. You and I are Ahab, and we're trying to eliminate the great whale who is God, who's actually relentlessly pursuing us in this place of divine visitation called the Pequod, the ship. We can't get off of it, and there's no escape from the great white whale. You can't escape it. He's going he's gonna to visit us here. Uh, so basically, the, it's the relentless pursuit of us uh, going to deal with us. This is the vis- divine visitation, meaning that God will deal with us. Uh, <clears throat> he will look in on us. And this is what James is saying here is that this is coming to his notice and he's going to check on you about this, all right? You're not going to, he's not going to brush this under the counter, if you will. So basically, God is going to deal with all of us, all of us sinners, for sure. Notice the guilt here. He says, behold, the pay of the laborers who've mowed your field has been withheld by you. So it's misgotten wealth. Uh, <clears throat> He not only holds this person responsible for <clears throat> what he does with his wealth, hoarding it, which is wrong, but he also holds this person responsible for how he got it. In this case, he's withheld something that wasn't really his to withhold. It belonged to the laborer, but he's kept it. He's withheld that. It's a note of uh, shock here. And behold, actually, it's like, you did What? You you kept this man's wages. You didn't give this man his wages. And a picture of exploitation, fraud, failing to pay a poor day laborer who harvested your crops, had to return home to a hungry family with nothing. He had nothing. He had to come home and say, "I didn't get paid. You know, I worked all day, but I didn't get paid." Um, <clears throat> Scripture is pretty plain on this. Luke ten seven says, For the laborer is worthy of his hire. First Timothy five eighteen, you shall not muzzle the ox who treads the grain. Labor is worthy of his reward. Uh, the idea of withholding here is more than just delaying or being reluctant to pay what you owe. He's actually defaulted here based on some technicality and the tense here means that it's still a default. He hadn't done anything about it to this point. He still has not done anything about this. It's, it remains uncorrected. And this is something that is strictly prohibited. It should make us sick, you know, if we ever do anything like this. Leviticus 19.13, so You shall not defraud your neighbor, neither rob him of the wages that the hired shall not be able... Shall, the wages of their hired man shall not abide with you all night. I mean, I'm to the point where somebody gives me something. Would you see that so and so gets this check? Now, now I'm like, oh, wait a minute! I've got to get this to the person before sundown. I actually feel that way. I actually sense that that if I have something that somebody else it belongs to them, I need to get it to them. And that's the way God views it here. This guy, he was holding back. And he God doesn't smile on this. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.14 Shall not oppress a hired servant, neither shall the sun go down. If you're holding his money, you better get it to him before the sun goes down. <laughs> like God's go- Okay, you're on the timer now. Let's see what you do about that. 
Um, anyway, so it says, this is the guilt here. He hasn't paid that person. He's defrauded them. He's still defrauded them. And then he says in verse 4, it's crying at, the wages are crying out against you. Kind of a, this impoverished laborer's wages are personified here as the wages are standing up saying, that's the guy right there, and I should have been over here, and should have been in this guy's, he should have been able to feed his family, but he wasn't able to do that. So here he personifies the wages, and the, the crying out here is a loud scream. It's used about the demoniac, and the spirit cried and tore him violently and came out in the same word here. Cried out, screaming against a shouting against this guy. He's defrauded this, this man that rightfully of the wages that rightfully belong to him. Basically, you need to think in terms of, this is an evil that screams for justice, pleading for vindication. Think of, uh, the scripture begins really pretty early, but uh, the blood of thy brother Abel screams from the ground at me. I'm hearing that. All right, This is the same, same idea here. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah has reached my ears. Um, Exodus 3, 9 said, Behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. It wasn't Moses that delivered the children of Israel from bondage. It was when God decided to do something about it. That's when they were delivered from bondage. So here the, it's reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of Lord Sabaoth. So the poor here, the economically exploited by the wealthy here, it was going to receive full attention of God. Uh, and guess who, I guess the point is, guess who the poor and helpless have on their side <laughs> in this case? It may not look like it, but he actually is on their side in this business. He's a just God. So James notes uh, in the hearing of this prayer, uh, I think in... Um, Exodus is talking about you're not to afflict the poor, the widowless, the fatherless. You should not afflict them in any way. Because if you do and they cry out to me, <laughs> if I hear about it, you're in big trouble. It's like, wait a minute here. You told God on me? <laughs> yes, I did. Well, I'm in big trouble at that point. See how that works here? Their cry is to God. And basically, he uses this expression, Lord Sabaoth. And this is our mighty fortress is our God, Lord Sabaoth. It's a, actually, it's a title for God. He's the commander of the angelic armies of heaven. And one of the most majestic titles of God. Uh, this is when, when David steps out against Goliath. <laughs> Guess who he steps out? I come against you, the Lord Sabaoth. You know, I'm, I stand before you, if you will, if you, in the name of the Lord of hosts, uh, the God of the armies of Israel. That's who he was defying. So he's saying the wealthy here are defying not just the poor, they're defying the Lord of hosts in this case. And um, great expression, the Lord of hosts occurs 23 times in the little book, the last book of the Bible, Malachi, the Lord of hosts. Interesting. And even Paul will use it in Romans 9. As Isaiah said, therefore, except the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sebaoth, had left us a seed, we've been like Sodom made like Gomorrah. So, guess whose name has now been placed on the docket for a visit? <laughs> for a Pequot from God. Wait a minute, what? Okay, so this man is 
in store for a visit from God. It has reached the hearing of Lord Sabaoth, if you will. And he's going to personally see to it that this wealthy hoarder gets what's coming to him. He goes on to describe his sin, self-indulgent luxury. Why is he hoarding all this? Well, you've lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. So in contrast to the hardship inflicted upon the poor man, this guy has, the word here is he's lived deliciously. You've lived deliciously on the earth. Oh, that's just delicious. It's kind of an uncaring, extravagant luxury like the rich man in Luke 16. A certain rich man who has clothed in purple fine linen fared sumptuously every day. Um, indulging senses in the delights of the things of this world. Uh, on this, this world for sure. Um, in your lifetime, you received all these great things. Uh, <clears throat> basically, the wanton pleasure is an interesting expression. I think it occurs twice in the New Testament. Um, it, it adds a note of the prodigal, unrestrained, give me the money, Dad, I'm out of here, heading for the pig pen eventually. Not, but first, I'm living in wanton pleasure. And uh, this is what he's saying. You've lived in a life of whole life of wanton pleasure. <clears throat> And the other occurrence, it mentions in the Old Testament, but in the other New Testament occurrence is 1 Timothy 5, 6, which says, she that gives herself to wanton pleasure is already dead, is dead while she lives. That's a scary thought, isn't it? They have their reward. They're already dead. They've already, they've nailed their coffin shut here. Living, this is, they've embraced this, this is my life, not Christ, but this is my life. Uh, the consequence, you've fatted your hearts for the day of slaughter. Uh, you've, you're sedated with food. Kind of like after Thanksgiving, you know, we're trying to watch a football game. We can't even breathe, you know. It's like, oh man, that third plate of dressing, that did it. You know, I shouldn't have done that. But this is a sedated, if you will. Um, and Luther, in his commentary, says, the rich are being compared to cattle here, whose wealth is merely pasturing their hearts for the judgment day. So the idea is that they're it's the fatted calf that enjoys himself immensely right up to the barbecue. <laughs> and he's the number one item on the list. He's actually fattening himself for the judgment in this case, if you will. Uh, so that's the consequence. Then he, he goes on to uh, give a final charge. You've oppressed the poor. You've oppressed the righteous. Their crime is they've condemned and put to death uh, the the righteous man. They've condemned him. This is kind of a word that has to do with the court system, the legal system. Looks back at chapter 2, verse 6. These are the same people you give the best seats to. They drag you into court. And so this is what's going on. Everything he does, withholding his money from this man, it's legal. You, I mean, this. I got a judge that agreed with me. This is legal. I got the best lawyers. This is all legal. This is a perverted legal system. Uh, this is going to be sure he gets a favorable verdict. Um, actually, God designed the legal system. It wasn't designed to be this way. It originally designed uh, to show justice and 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 partiality, if you will, not take bribes, that kind of stuff. So he's condemned, and then he's murdered, if you will. You've condemned and put to death. Uh, the consequence of the, 
the legal system backing him up. It was kind of a judicial murder in this case, depriving this poor man of his living. And the stresses on the word of this ruthless insensitivity toward another to get your way. I don't care about you. I just want the money. It's it's the money. That's the bottom line. I just, you know, in the Old Testament it talks about you pant after the dust on the scales. Now that's greed. Hold it. Let me dust off the scales here. I might get a little more. This kind of thing. This is the greed that you've you've insensitive insensitivity of the wealth toward the one uh, who he owes this money to is just brutality, trampling on them. Uh, And again, it's all legal. Actually, the word here, put to death, is usually translated murder. Literally murder. And in this case, would they literally murder somebody to get their way? Well, I think so. When people murder somebody, it's usually some motive behind it. See, the money or who knows what. All kinds of things. But he can do this, certainly. And James sees this as a class sin of the powerful, rich, tyrannizing the poor. It's not like Washington, D.C. a little bit, you know, or maybe a lot. <clears throat> Notice the victim here. Uh, you condemn to put to death the righteous man, and he doesn't resist you. A lot of understand, a lot of people that... Uh, a lot of commentaries see this as a reference to Jesus, uh, or John, James make a prophetic statement about his own death. He's he's James the righteous. Yeah, that's again that's eisegesis. I'm reading into something that's really that's not what James is saying, and that's not what they understood. We need to. What is he saying? Well, what did they hear him say? Authorial intent, very important when you understand the scripture. What does the author mean here? Not what you think he means. But what does he mean and what do they understand he meant? Okay, that's what he meant. You need to put yourself in their shoes to understand what this means, all right? So it's not talking about some other things. It's talking about this, some poor man. People in their church are being uh, probably taken to court and doing all kinds of evil against them. And <clears throat> it does seem to, uh, to apply to believers that he's writing to that have been economically oppressed and exploited by the wealthy who are part of their 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 frame of reference there. Uh, the righteous person is said not to oppose or resist the tyranny. And um, again, uh, he's he, he, probably not able, he's not financially able when accused of perjury to get a lawyer to defend himself against the judge in the whole system. He can't do that. He's a poor man. This stuff has been going on for a long time and it's still going on. Uh, in this case, he lives out the truth of trusting Christ in these things, you know. Um, these things are hard. You know, Matthew 38, where it says, you heard that it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, I say for you, don't resist the evil. Whoever shall strike you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Man sues you at law. Take away your coat. Let him have your cloak also. That's some hard stuff. I don't really know how to explain that, but the idea is I'll just trust God in this situation. I need to trust the Lord that He's going to work this out even though I may not be able to. He's still in control of the world, isn't He? Isn't He in control of you? And all, even this rich man, all that's under His control. We just need to trust Him. So again, this kind of behavior is not a natural human thing. Uh, this is a meekness or sub- humble submission to God's will. Uh, actually, is a confirmation of their faith. 
And it actually confirms the guilt of the rich man who remains unmoved by this humility of the poor man that he's that he has um, taken his wealth from him and in order to hoard it, if you will. So James has dealt with this problem of pursuing wealth without regard to God or others. It can be a blessing, and it should be. If God blesses you with any kind of material wealth, I mean, you count it as a blessing, use it for His glory. Um, but certainly, uh, the idea here is that here's a man that he's living for this. Um, and 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 he's de- he's describing this this situation to believers so that they'll not envy the wealthy and they'll understand their end. And he's giving us an assurance here that God will avenge all such social economic injustice. Again, he's not dealing with some kind of a matter of social injustice. He's dealing with the problem of sin, pure greed, and how we react to that. So worldliness shows itself by godless self-confident, uh, expressing our life, uh, how we speak to people, how we plan our lives, how we use our money. And, and actually, he's, he's asking us, are you hoarding your possessions? Are you holding the things God has given you loosely? It's hard to possess riches without the sin of being possessed by them. And this man was actually possessed by his riches. He wasn't holding them lightly. And then the verse in uh, Jeremiah 9, I'll conclude with it, says, uh, 9.23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. In these things I delight, say the Lord. That's what we should glory in, that we know Him. He's in control of all these things. He that lays up treasure just for himself is a fool and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words from James. We pray that they might be helpful to us, especially in in our present life and uh, the world we live in. Help us to seek that wisdom from above. Uh, help us, Lord, to uh, look to Your Word for the light to direct our path. We thank You for loving us and providing for all of our needs, especially our eternal needs through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask You to bless this study today in Jesus' name.